This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. Joining me is my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, my friend? Well, mate, I'm feeling a little bit chuffed. Uh, I thought it was just going to be you and I having a bit of a chat here and then uh, all of a sudden... A special guest just materialised virtually out of thin air. <laughs> it happens. It it happens when you're uh, approaching ten thousand downloads, as we are, and uh, and the words getting out there. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the audience is is growing every day. I see too, which must make you feel very happy. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, just for the fact that people are listening and enjoying what we're doing, I want to um, throw a couple of things out there. Number one. A very special mention to Chloe Ehrlich, who came on uh, less than two weeks ago now, and uh, she is already our most listened to and downloaded podcast guest, uh, overtaking our mate Owen Pike, who was on in October last year. So it shows just how quickly she's, she's risen up the ranks. A- and also, just really quickly, um, if you do like listening to the podcast, which we presume you do... Um, the one way that we can get it out there onto more platforms is reviews. So if you can stop by the Apple podcast platform and do a review for the Territory Story podcast, we would love that. And uh, that'll help us to get onto more platforms. Well said. Well, I think it's introduction time. Okay. So it gives me absolute great pleasure to introduce our next guest. Uh, I've been trying to get her onto the podcast now, I, I would say, for the best part of almost a year. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just uh, decided to try my luck today, tonight and uh, roll the dice, and here she is. So um, I would like to welcome to our podcast the lady uh, doctor that saved my son's life, her name is Dr. Bo Remini. How are you, Bo? Very well, thank you. And thanks for thanks so much for inviting me tonight. It's a real pleasure to be here tonight. Well, we're, thank we're you looking for joining us, Bo. Yeah, we're looking forward to having a wonderful conversation with you, Bo, because there are a lot of things we'd like to touch on. Uh, and I know some of those things are very important to you, and I think they're very important for our listeners to actually hear and also understand. But uh, in true Territory Story podcast fashion, we would like to start uh, with your Territory Story, beginning with where you were born. So I was born in Hungary in 1974, and specifically on the 24th of December. And um, that may or may not mean very much to you, but I was born exactly to the minute and to the day of Swarthland Tracy. Wow. <laughs> I thought that was what was coming. I was thinking about something happening in Hungary. <laughs> no, 24th of December, 1974. Uh, gosh, well, there you so go. It's been my destiny to come here. It yeah. has been, right. And so uh, you're, you were, I know a little bit about your story, so it's got, I'm going to uh, take some liberties here, but you're, your dad was a, a mathematician in Hungary, wasn't he? That is correct, yes. Yeah, he was a professor at the university? Yes, that, that is correct. Right, right. In pure mathematics. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and what did your mother do? And my mother was a, a preschool teacher in Hungary. And when, he, when we came to Australia, we had no English. 
And so obviously, my mother found it difficult to find a professional job in Australia. So, so my mother did lots of jobs like uh, serving in takeaway shops, working on banana farms in North Queensland, and doing lots of cleaning jobs in houses and for factories. Right, right. But um, before you, you migrated to Australia, I mean, you, you were in Hungary for what, what, around 15 years, weren't you? 13, 13, 13 years. 13 is right. I was trying to do the maths. Uh, and, and you also have a younger sister. No, I have an older sister. Oh, but you're older, <laughs> right. But she, be, she just, because she's always, you know, travelling around so much, I feel like she's a younger sibling. Yeah. She's, she, she's a year and a half older and she looks 10 years younger. Now, <laughs> <laughs> no, Peter would be very interested in hearing about your sister because she has led a remarkable life in, in, in her own right. But, um, so, but 13 years in Hungary, what was it like growing up there? So as a child, as you know, what children do is all we want to do is have fun. Mm. And I'm sure that relates back to your childhood and every single childhood that should be like in Australia. So as a kid, it was fine. It was fun. It was a real struggle for my parents because they were against the com Communist Party. It's certainly something that I didn't feel or didn't experience, um, but I felt it through my parents. Mm. Right. And so... Um what happened to your dad? Um, so, to be honest, my parents divorced when I was young. Right. And the divorce was partially related to that my father was in a communist party and my mother, who was really strongly against the communist party. And back then in Hungary, this is before the Berlin Wall came down, and you had two options. One is to vote for the communist party or to vote against the Communist Party. And my mother voted against the Communist Party. Mm. And because of that, my family was very strongly disadvantaged. Um, and, you know, now looking at back on it, and I'm thinking, why did my mother vote against the Communist Party? Because you could just tick this box and we, could, we would have equal amount of income. But my mother ticked the opposite box against the Communist Party and that means we were severely financially disadvantaged as a family, as kids. Mm. And um, there were no two parties. There was only one party, but my mother held her head high and she said, I'm going to vote against this, even if you're going to be disadvantaged. Uh, pardon my ignorance, Bo, but um, I mean, I'm obviously a, a aware of Hungary as a country, um, but I'm not overly aware of the history. So, where, where did they sit in, in relation to, uh, I guess, the, the, the Second World War in particular, but, you know, since then and, and with regards to communism, like where did, where did they sit? Where were their allegiances? I suppose it comes back to the First World War. And um, Hungary has always played a pretty neutral part because it's kind of halfway between the East and the West. But essentially, I think... Most historians would believe in a world that the reason why the world, First World War happened is because of Hungary. So Hungary was blamed mm. for the First World War. And whether it's true or not, you can debate that. But because of that, Hungary lost two-thirds of its land mass overnight. Wow. 
it's pretty massive. A country mm-hmm. that's reduced to a very small number of people and, and that dispute physically took place in what used to be called Yugoslavia and now it's called, I'm not going to be specific, but either, you know, Serbia mm-hmm. or Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it goes goes back a long way. During the Second World War, Hungary had also had a very neutral part. Uh, you know, whoever was going to save us, uh, kind of mission. And um, after the Second World War, Hungary was divided into the Eastern Bloc mm-hmm. rather than the Western Bloc, a bit like East Berlin and West Berlin. Yeah. So Hungary got really stuck in the Eastern Bloc. We had a very strong communism and very harsh laws and most of our imports and exports were kind of stolen by the Soviet unions. Hungary became very disadvantaged through that and certainly the mentality was of a, um, you know, communist society that I think I can speak perhaps for many of the Hungarians, perhaps not for the most, but, you know, it's something that was not liked by Hungarians. And finally, we left Hungary in 19... arrived to Australia in 1988. We left Hungary in 1987, and that was about two years before the Berlin Wall came down. And Mm -hmm. I can say that with confidence the Berlin Wall came down due to the very positive contribution of my fellow Hungarians. Mm. Mm. And so you left Hungary at the age of 13. On, on, what, on what basis did your mother come to Australia? Was it as a refugee or was it as a political asylum seeker? How did it work? Yeah, at that time it actually worked as a political migrant. So we right. weren't refugees. Like, right. you know, refugees are pretty, it's a pretty serious status. Yeah. It should be very highly respected by all people who are refugees that they're desperate hmm. and just to survive uh, for food, health and shelter. So we came as political migrants and my family was quite severely disadvantaged by the fact that my mother didn't tick the box for, a, for voting for the uh, Socialist Party. Hmm. Um, so we came as political migrants, which is a slightly, you know, less severe kind of status. Mm. We were extremely fortunate that back then, before the Berlin Wall came down, Australia had this immigration policy of taking Eastern Bloc migrants Mm. based on political status, which was just like a political migrant Mm -hmm. being disadvantaged. But, you know, we weren't like, as far as I know, we, we weren't like, going to lose your life overnight. Mm. That was my view. Mm. Uh, and you left in 87 and you arrived in Australia in 88. So w- was it a journey to get here? Obviously. Like yeah. we landed, like no, no joke, we landed in Australia on Queen's birthday in 88, which was, was the bicentennial. Anyway. <laughs> oh, <it was> too. <laughs> <laughs> the celebration of a nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we left Hungary illegally. Um, that was quite tricky. We went, I lived in a refugee camp for 12 months in Austria. As, as, as I said, we did not have refugee t- status, just to get mm-hmm. it clear, but we had political migrant status. Um, living in a refugee camp with no education and no, 
no freedom, but we were looked after pretty well by the United Nations. Wow. I didn't even know there were refugee camps in Austria. They were back then, yep. Right. And so after a year, um, what, what did your mother just apply to all these different countries or how, does, how did it work? So when we arrived in, in the refugee camp, you had to, um, back then, so this is 1987, um, you, had, you could apply for the US, Australia, South Africa, or uh, New Zealand. And my mother, and a lot of people in similar status as my family applied for all those. My mother only applied for Australia only. <laughs> Good on her. <laughs> don't know why, but she just wanted Australia. And, and then, then after 11 months, so it wasn't quite 12 months, after 11 months, we got to Australia and our airfare was paid by Australian government. Right. We got to Adelaide. We put up in a migrant camp for six months in Adelaide. And that was bloody awesome. Because that's the first time I learned how to speak English and they get these English lessons and everything else. And they truly looked after us, by the way. Like, I remember my first day when we landed at Queen's birthday, Adelaide, public holiday, big streets, no cars. This <laughs> <laughs> is Australia. They get these major highways with no cars. Like, yeah. is this really the country I landed in? <laughs> You just you can't imagine as a child's perspective. Yeah. And then we landed this in migrant centre, and this, there was this fridge, right? This fridge was full of food, like jam, chocked of fresh fruit, bananas, lettuce, tomatoes, and I've never seen anything like that. So the uh. Australian welcome was like. Wow, this is Australia. <laughs> <laughs> In my entire life, I've never seen a fridge like that. Uh, right. What a great story. It was pretty story. interesting, the welcome that we had in Australia. And so, and so how long were you in Adelaide for? Six months, and then we moved to Townsville at my mother's choice because she wanted to live in a tropical Australia. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Welcome to the tropics. Yeah, right. because imagine June in... Adelaide, that was not quite no. tropical, but, you know, June in Adelaide is, like, really cold and it's yeah. pretty un-Australian. Yeah. But, but June in Adelaide wouldn't have been that different, different to sort of summer in Hungary, right? No, no, exactly. <laughs> but, my, but my mother had this image of tropical Australia and June right. in Adelaide just doesn't match that. <laughs> they didn't leave Hungary to enjoy the same weather, Leon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Townsville, you were 14 odd years, 15 years old? Yeah, so 13 and a half, yeah. 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 Right, and uh, growing up in Townsville, what was that like? Yeah, so it was challenging, but really uh, inspiring as well. Um, so, I went to Townsville State High School, and it was an, an amazing public high school, but I have to say that it's, it's, it's inspirational. And, you know, today we have all these discussions about high schools and how well they perform in Australia and how peaceful they are to international levels. I have to say that Townsville State High School performed and helped me a lot mm. to achieve my goals, unquestionably. So I think there is an optimism for state high schools in Australia. But tell me something. I mean, you, you were 13 years old. You'd never spoken English in your life. How the heck do you end up going to high school? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's just what you do. Mm. 
So, did, I mean, did you, did you were you a fast learner with English? I mean, how did it how did it work? Well, yeah. well she, she wasn't learning English for starters. She was learning Australian, which is even harder. <laughs> and in Townsville, of all places. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I had six months of English in Adelaide, but I, but I learned the Queen's English for the first time. <laughs> in my first day at high school in Townsville, I can literally say I couldn't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> to make it even worse... And one of the things I was really interested in is, you know, first day at high school, you remember in a refugee camp for 12 months, I hadn't gone to school. So for a 13-year-old to someone who hasn't been to school for 12 months, that is like eternity. Mm, yes. It's, it's like, and now finally I'm back at school. And now finally I'm back at school with Townsville and English. So, <laughs> so it was very clear that, my interest was in history and I was not allowed to do history because I couldn't speak English very clearly. Uh. And so for whatever reason, Townsville State High School decided I had to have five subjects and had to choose things. I chose English, maths, PE, geography. And then after all that, I chose French. And for whatever reason, you know, you can debate it. But my very first class in Australia, as it happens, was French. <laughs> so I turned up to my first French, French class. This is my very first class in Australia. All these kids, I was in year nine. All these kids been doing French for 12 months from year eight. And the English teacher says um, in French, hello, how are you doing? I said in English, i sorry, I, I don't understand. Then in English, said, hello, how are you doing? I said, sorry, I don't understand. <laughs> so then I realized I was learning French and English and neither understood any of those languages. <laughs> Jeepers. That makes it hard. So, and, and there was no such thing as like um, uh, ESL or, or, or... Yeah, no, that was ESL, yeah. Okay. okay. It was very good as well. Yeah. Okay. Right, and so, um, but your sister was a couple of years older than you, or a year and a half older. How yeah. did she cope? Yeah, so my sister is a very different character for me. She is very good with languages, and and she coped rather well. And but she was very shy, not speaking, but understanding everything. But mm. she had different challenges because I was always the one to speak out without knowing how to speak, and she was the one who understood everything in languages with being very reserved and you both uh, and your mother i guess um she kind of struggled in terms of employment and things like that because uh, the language would have been a, a bit of a challenge for her so she did a whole lot of odd jobs around the place did she yeah yeah so my mother um uh, she started in some takeaway shops and then she worked in banana farms in ingham uh, in isfell in queensland and and then she did lots of other cleaning jobs. So she kind of had lots of odd jobs along the way to try to help us support us. And then at the end, not at the end, but very early on during my high school years, she came down with very severe arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and she was pretty disabled. So we had a lot of support from like St. John's and um, lots of other, other agencies, which I won't even be able to name, like Red Cross. and. Um, and Mills and Wills and lots of other other people who really chipped in big time to help me and my sister to get through high school while my mother was 
disabled with her arthritis, yes. Mm. Wow. Just on the language front, um, so the, the native language of Hungary, Hungarian? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. What language is that similar to? So the Hungarian language is similar to two things. One is Mongolian oh. and second is Finnish. Right. The Finnish language. And it's because Attila the Han came from fighting Genghis Khan yeah. in a Mongolian region and then he came across with his mob and then it split into two Finnish and Hungarian. But yeah, wow. the, the, the Mongolian language is extremely similar to the Hungarian language. How many conversations have you had before, Leon, that involved Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun? <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm, I'm seriously, I'm just stunned that I didn't, I didn't know that Hungarian was a, a derivative of, of Mongolian. Yeah. My goodness. Wow. Well, I so tell the, you what. So there's no English in any of that. That's the problem. There's, there's, it's just wow. so far removed from English, it's not funny. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you and your sister. Uh, sorry, what was, I forgot her name now. Barbara. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> Such a Hungarian name, that one. <laughs> so it's funny to mention her because in Hungary, I had a Hungarian, you know, I had a very typical name, Boglaka, which yes. is my full name, or Boy for short. Yes. And Barbara was always a foreign name. Then we come to Australia. And now, all of a sudden, my name is a foreign name, and hers is a normal name. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you and Barbara both excelled at school, somehow, notwithstanding English. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, she was very good at maths, I know that. And, and you must have been as well, I, pr I presume. Yeah, I was good at maths, but yeah. I, I kind of look for challenges that I failed because I want <laughs> to excel at things that I failed at. Right. So, so you both finished high school, but Barbara went on to do a maths degree, just like following in her father's footsteps. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And you decided you wanted to do medicine? Yeah, I didn't actually kind of decide it for myself, but uh, I wanted to do science, but I had very strong input from Townsville State High School guidance, guidance officers who insisted that I should do medicine. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, not from my parents, but there was strong input from ah. my teachers at a public school in Townsville that they said, this is, you really need to get on with it. Oh, Actually, I need, to, I need to ask you one very important question that I just realised we didn't connect the dot on. Your dad, was he against you leaving Hungary to go to... Um well, obviously to go to Austria, but then Australia? Did, what, did, or did he not worry about it? Uh, so that's a bit of a stats, sad story. Um, so anyone who left Hungary when my family left, uh, if anyone knew about that, they got chucked into gulags and they got killed in Siberia. Oh so um, I recall my day when I said goodbye to my father, and I told my father that I will see in three days. And in fact, my father owned me like 50 bucks or something equal to that for the work that I've done on tobacco farms back then. Mm -hmm. And I told him I will see in three days, knowing all well that I will never see him again. Mm. He left Hungary illegally, and it was very clear if I would have told anyone, including my father, then we'll be in Siberia and we would be dead. Mm. And that's what happened to many of my friends. 
and relatives. So I did not even tell my own father that we were escaping Hungary. I wrote him a letter once we arrived to refugee camp and I apologized that I lied to him. Mm. But he was okay? Uh, he, he, he didn't get chucked in jail? No, he, he well, he was not okay. Mm. He was devastated. Mm. He was, yeah. as you would imagine, mm. that he, he will never see, because you know, back then, it, we were never going to see him again. Mm. But then the Berlin Wall came down two years later. And of course, they have seen him again many, many times after yeah. that. But at that stage, we were never going to see him again. Yeah. And to write him a letter on why I lied to him when I was never going to see him again, it was to protect my, me and my sister. Yeah. yeah. And it was very, very tough. And he took it very tough, obviously, because I told him I'm going away for the weekend. Mm. Thank, thankfully, it uh, it turned out okay. Yeah, it turned mm. out okay. Yeah, mm. but yeah, at that stage, you know, like you know, yeah. you had to live in the in the Eastern Bloc to know what that meant. Of course, yeah. And it course. meant like as kids, as twelve-year-old kids and thirteen-year-old kids, we know what it meant. And mm. it meant if you share any of your knowledge with anyone, you end up dead in a gulag. That was very, very clear. So you can imagine how afraid I was that I couldn't share this information with my own father and I lied to him purposefully. And, and just on that, just so I understand it, um, you, you mentioned before that Hungary was aligned to you know, what we know as the Eastern Bloc, um, but it wasn't part of the USSR, was it? So how did people who were prisoners from Hungary end up in Siberia, which is part of Russia. So Hungary was a communist country and aligned to the USSR. Okay. So we had, did have an independent government back then, independent in the inverted Congress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and all, you know, like Hungary would just on the streets as a child, as a 10 year old, as an eight year old, the, USSR armies on every single corner. Right. They were there every time. I remember as a kid, we learned these swear words in Russian, and we used to just tell them to like, <laughs> off in Russian. And it's surprisingly tolerant that the Russian army would tolerate kids and they would just say, you know, okay, whatever. Yeah. And they would never retaliate against kids. But as kids, we would always use, you know, the first, as, uh, you know, the first thing we learned is swear words. Yeah. in their language to tell them to get out of here. And they were very kind to us, I must say. They were very gentle and very nice and they never did anything to kids. We were just having fun and a good time and challenging them. But certainly this was our everyday life of Russian occupation on our streets. Wow. So getting back to Townsville and your, and your guidance counsellor, they insisted that you did medicine. So that, that suggests that you must have done very, very well in your matriculation. Yeah, I did fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, tell that to my daughter now who's, uh, who's uh, in year 12 and sweating bullets over, <laughs> over <her> matriculation. <laughs> um, and so, uh, okay, so which uni did you go to? University of Queensland. Oh, so you went down to Brisbane then? Yes, I okay, did. Okay, right. 
And what was that like? I mean, leaving Townsville, leaving your mother. Um, so it was, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, you know, by the time I became a, like an international traveller in some at some level, um, so that was fine going to University of Queensland. It was no challenge. I got a scholarship to get into medicine, but I also got a scholarship to get into a number of other things that I was really interested in, which was um, chemistry and physics and um, kind of space stuff. So it's a pretty broad <laughs> spectrum. Of yeah. So, in fact, medicine probably was my last choice because I was really interested in pure sciences. But um, before going to University of Queensland, um, I did represent Australia in the World Championship for chess for Australia. Yes. That's wow. <laughs> so that so I had like after arriving in Australia, I had you know I went to Singapore, I went to Brazil went to Germany to represent Australian chess. So this kind of move to Brisbane was kind of nothing. Right. Mm. Yeah. 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 It was like dull and boring. <laughs> <laughs> Moving suburbs. Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah exactly. So you, you were just ticking all the boxes of an, of an Eastern European person, weren't you? You know, good at chess, good at maths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, and then you have to acknowledge the education that Eastern Bloc came with, yes, with yes. all the negatives that I described. Yes. But uh, Eastern Bloc did come with this level of education that was very methodical. And, you know, this is very widely discussed right now in Australia and what's happening to our education system. And certainly coming from an Eastern Bloc country coming to Australia, education was like piss easy right. because yeah. we had a very solid structured education. And... You know, like looking at the news today, looking at the news tomorrow, you just think, what is happening to education in Australia? Was it more, um, you know, coming from that structured uh, study regime, was it, was it more difficult to learn under Australian circumstances or was it easier? It was, um, well, you know, I mean, Australia was just like, um, to be honest, it was like so easy. So, you know, mm. you're talking to a child who hasn't been in school for a year and a half in a refugee camp and then top my class in year nine mm. without speaking a single word of English. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say without like, understanding seriously. anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, like seriously. So, like the stuff that I learned in year six in Hungary was still first year university level in Australia. Oh, like, wow. Seriously. Wow. So the, the pure core sciences, biology, physics, chemistry, so that's, that's, that's pretty hardcore material that's taught in, in socialist countries at year mm. five, year six, year seven, year eight. Wow. And year eight is like primary school finished, and then you've got high school. And in Australia, we don't start teaching those until late high school or university yeah. and some yeah. stuff. So Australia yeah. has really softened and education system which is really focuses on social sciences which may have some benefits, may, may have. <laughs> yeah. um, may have no benefits altogether. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, the, like the, the, the human brain is more susceptible to learning at a very early age. The earlier you age, you, in my opinion, you teach the hardcore sciences the better it is for um, 
people who actually want to engage in those science pathways. And mm. that's obviously not for everybody. It's for a certain population of people who are interested in them because there's many other things in life outside of sciences. But um, it's really interesting how Australia does not introduce that hardcore science till late high school mm. and perhaps only in university levels. And so I do have some questions for the Education Department of Australia on how they're dealing with the current situation uh, in Australia because we have got some excellent minds and brains in Australia and perhaps our children are not getting the benefit of that, of uh, exploring children's minds and leading to a better future for all of us. Well, if COVID-19 has taught me anything, uh, on day one of homeschool, when I asked the kids to show me their schedule for the day, and uh, I looked at the nine-year-old twins' uh, work that they were going to be doing for that day, I, I, I actually said to them, without being disrespectful, well, I think the teacher may have put 30 seconds thought into that. It, it was five dot points that each consisted of one to two words, and I thought, well, what hope do they have, really? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think Australia really, really need to step up. And it, there's a lot of challenges because um, I was watching Paul Murray Live last night and uh, one of the facts that I learned, um, whether they're facts or not, I can't verify, um, but in Sydney only um, one-third of all high school students attend more than 90%. Of the wow. time in New South Wales, not in Sydney, but in New South Wales, one yeah. third. Yeah. And at the same time, in New South Wales, 27% of all high school students attend universities. So you get this figure where you think anyone who attends 90% of the time in New South Wales at high school will get to university. So what happens to the two thirds of all students? And mm-hmm. um, so that's something I really do worry about because. You know, there is other things outside of universities, um, you know, and, and students should be directed towards pathways that they would most benefit from, whether they're going to be a, a builder, a plumber, electrician, cook, business person. There's so many things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens that high schools are really focused. Is Anyone who attends high school will get to uni in New South Wales. And nothing is focused on anything else. Something that Leon and I talked about a few months ago, Leon, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but there there was an argument to say that um, because there are so many subjects offered now in schools, that that the traditional learning of maths and science and English, et cetera, has been diluted so far to, to cater for those that weren't, probably coping under the traditional system. But but as a result, it's creating mediocrity throughout. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just really important to get those core basic educational um, streams completely under control. I mean, it just it, – it, it is absolutely critical to get, you know, basic English, basic science, basic mathematics – Mm. And to a really, really strong level because, after all, that's what we want to do. And, you know, like perhaps because English is my second language, I can kind of more relate to mathematics and certainly through my father's line and everything else. 
but it's so disappointing to see someone in a shop and you can't add up, you know, mm. a bill costs 88 bucks and they can't work out that you give 100 bucks or 12 bucks is your change. <laughs> and this is very common in Australia. Mm. Mm. Very, 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 very basic arithmetics. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't, you know, Indian kid in the slum could do that mm. because it matters to them what they get back because yeah. they will be cheated on that. Mm. But none of this, of course, uh, was a problem for you, Bo. You, you sailed through medicine at uh, UQ? That's correct. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then uh, when you finished, what did you decide to do? So I obviously decided to be a pediatric cardiologist. What do you mean obviously? I don't understand obviously. Well, why obviously? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> um, so... I suppose there's a little bit of socialist in my heart and I want to help the most disadvantaged people in Australia because, you know, Australia is such an amazing country and Australia has provided me with opportunities that I could have never dreamed of. Mm. It would not have been in my vocabulary of dreaming of. So I'm very thankful for Australia taking my family and looking after us. And when I saw such disadvantage, advantage of remote indigenous kids having this heart disease it was just like my obligation to kind of change this and um, because these kids should never suffer things like they're suffering from today so it was like such a natural decision for me to make sure that uh, what australia has done for me i'm going to do the same for australian people who are struggling so you you finished your your medical degree and then you must have practiced a little bit before specialising in paediatrics or you went straight into paediatrics? No, I, I served, uh, based on a scholarship, I worked in remote Queensland for three years. So I got paid for my last three years of med school because my family was like shit poor, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, I got paid for that and in return I did three years remote service, which right. changed my life forever. Yes, mm. yes. And where was that in Queensland? Which part? It was in remote Queensland. I served places like Dumuji, Mornington, Palm Island, just to name a few communities, but pretty much the most difficult communities in remote Queensland where I was in charge of, charge of as a medical superintendent. And right. um, those experiences were eye-opening for me because I came from a communist country and saw disadvantage. I came to Australia and Australia just looked after me and my family like you wouldn't believe it. It was like the dream country. It was like there's no roots. It was insane how well Australia looked after migrants like my family. And then going back into remote Indigenous community, it's something was like an eye-opener seeing two different Australias. And that's where I can definitely thought that this is where I needed to stand up because Australia stood up for me when I needed help. So it was my duty to stand up for other Australians um, to make sure that all Australians have equitable rights to basic health services. Mm. So when you got there, had you heard about the situation in those remote communities at that stage? Did you know what to expect? No, I had no idea. Like, wow. Yeah, it was a complete shock. Because, yeah. you know, I've seen bad things in communist countries, but going to remote communities, it was just something that was horrific, unexpected, and um, unacceptable. 
Mm. Wow. What was yeah, horrific? Guess... What was horrific about it? So the horrific part about it was um, is the status quo that most people in uh, governments were um, accepting that this is normal. It's clearly not normal. It was clearly not normal back then, but it's clearly not normal now as well. Uh, but it was as if they had, um, as it was, if, if it was okay for remote people altogether, whether indigenous or non-indigenous, that they had an inferior service and it was okay for them to die. It was okay for them to die from um, diseases of poverty. Um, so examples of these are not specific, but something like rheumatic heart disease, where, you know, that this was normal. This was normal for a 16 or 14 year old child just to pass away from these diseases that were literally in the history books and should still be in the history books, even though they are not right now in Australia. But there was this overarching feeling that that was the normal back then. And I think it is still the normal now, by the way. But can you describe to me what a um, disease of poverty is? And am I to read into that that it's completely preventable? Yeah. So I suppose nothing is 100% preventable, but, yeah, you know, like as close you can get to that. So 99% preventable. Um, so these are really... Um, so I'm going to give you an example that I'm kind of a leader in or expert in rheumatic heart disease. It's one of the diseases that kind of highlights this true disadvantage in remote Australia. So kids are dying from diseases that the United States Army in the Second World War developed a treatment for, which was penicillin. So these conditions are treated by the most basic antibiotic that we discovered in our human society during the Second World War. It was discovered by Australian and British and then developed into mass manufacturing uh, during the Second World War. In, in fact, during the Second World War, um, enormous number of US soldiers age 20, lost their life due to rheumatic fever. And then penicillin was invented, and that was one of the things that saved the Second World War, by the way, in, like in the background. Like, that wasn't the key, key thing, by the way, but there were lots, lots of things, obviously, to be credited yeah. for in the Second World War. At one stage, more U.S. soldiers were dying from rheumatic heart disease than the World War itself. Wow. Just to put that in perspective, obviously, World War is very complex, and you know, there's a lot of people to be credited for, for that. And one of the things to be credited for the Second World War is the introduction of penicillin. It's like one small thing in the whole jigsaw on how that happened. And so they got that. But in remote Indigenous Australians, we have failed to deliver this treatment that was discovered by Australian implemented by the British and the US during the Second World War, and yet we're still seeing kids dying from preventable diseases that are treated by the most simple, basic antibiotics that were available soon. 
uh, during the Second World War, was the first injection, but midway Second World War, this was commercialized. Mm. And it's all a result of overcrowding. So one of the things that the US Army discovered is how to prevent rheumatic fever. So what is rheumatic fever? Rheumatic fever is a very complex disease, starts from a sore throat or a skin sore, and then leads to a really complex autoimmune reaction, then the body confuses the germs with the heart valve. And the body's immune system starts firing against both. It fires against the germ and it fires against the heart valve. And then what you're left with, no germs, but your heart completely damaged. It's like these things are caught in crossfire, literally. Mm. This is a crossfire inside the body. And the way to treat this is penicillin. But another way of treating it, which is really important, is social distancing. And this is what we learned about during COVID-19. So the critical party that they discovered in the U.S. Army that saved like hundreds of thousands of soldiers is one and a half meters separation from bed to bed in the uh, Navy barracks, specifically the Navy. So Navy decided this head-to-toe approach. Their head-to-toe had to be at least meter and a half. And what is that's what saved the U.S. soldiers, U.S. Navy uh, people. So now in COVID-19, we say meter and a half. Where did a meter and a half come from? It came from the many few times during Second World War. So yeah, we've done a good job in uh, Australia, and we've done a fantastic job. And we always think we, we are the world leaders in this. Like, look at Australia compared to United States. Look at it compared to Britain. Look at it compared to Spain or France. Look at it compared to any country you, you, you want to name. Australia is like the legend of COVID-19. We just have done so well as a country. Mm-hmm. And why? Because we have limited social distancing. We implemented a number of things, border closures. Now it's time to relax them, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's time to relax them, but we did. We have to, you know, we have to congratulate Australia. Yeah. This is like legendary what we have done. Look at India yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to my Indian colleagues last night, and I don't want to share with you, but it's all tragic, and everything is yeah. tragic. But Australia has done well. So we can do this. We can prevent infectious diseases spreading in Australia. We've done very well. Time to relax the borders within Australia. Talk about international borders a little bit later on. But mm. Australia has done extremely well. Right. And we have to congratulate us, every single one of us, who led to this. Mm. So why can't we do the same for rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease in remote communities? Because over there, 20 people live in a house, there's no social distancing, right. there's no sanitizers, there's no running taps, there's no running toilets, there's no running showers. Wow. Okay. I mean, that, that as ridiculous as this next, next statement is going to sound, that's kind of the most basic of requirements, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's the most requirements. You know, like, you know, what Australia has done so well because we've done so well with this social distancing. Why did Northern Territory shut its borders? Because we have to protect the Indigenous community and we do have to do that. It's our obligation. And why is our obligation to shut the Northern Territory borders? We'll be shut for much longer than any other borders. Clearly, mm-hmm. because we cannot implement social distancing in remote communities. Oh, There's right. 20 people per household. Mm, right. I get it. Well, that I get certainly it. hasn't it's come up. Social distancing. 
If yeah. the warrant gets you out there, that's the end of that. Yeah. So there's two approaches. One is to Australia, federal government, will authority to step up and say, we're going to solve all infectious diseases once and for all. We're going to address this enormous issue we have in remote communities, but 20 people per two-bedroom house with no running water, with no functioning toilets, uh, you know, it's a disaster for all infections, including rheumatic fever, which is my passion, because kids die from this and have expensive open heart surgery. And who pays for the expensive open heart surgery? You and I pay for that. Mm. And for what benefit? Pretty limited, by the way. And mm. what we need to do is prevent these things. The way we prevented COVID-19 so successfully in the Northern Territory and in the entire Australia. And we did that by certain measures, having hand gels, having social distancing, um, having hand sanitizers, having toilet paper, for God's sake, and all mm. those things. Rumor communities never have any of that. They don't have social, they don't have running water, they don't have running toilets, they don't have a functional, you know. So that's what they need, like what the rest of Australia already has. So I'm, I'm going to give the most basic... Um response to that in as much as it's a partially a question but my understanding is that a lot of the indigenous communities that are, are built by governments and charities and you know whoever builds the various communities that they start out with those things they start out with housing and running water and taps and showers and so forth but a lot of these properties get destroyed over time and the overcrowding is absolutely an issue but how do we prevent that you know how do we stop what i suppose is whether you want to call it neglect or damage or whatever it might be how how is it that these houses start out as well-built places and end up with none of those facilities working so uh I'm not going to give you like the ultimate answer on this, but I'm going to give you my opinion. And my opinion is, um, and I think this is pretty widely shared, by the way. So first of all, you pay a lot of worksmen to go out there and build houses, and they do very dodgy jobs. Mm. And you know, I had a recently a house built in in in, um, the, uh, in um, New Heads, and it. Uh, my house was built, built in Muheads like two years ago and the toilet didn't work and the, the pipes were running the wrong way, not down, but it was running up, so the toilet never worked. Mm. So we, you got these kind of basic issues. So when you go out to remote and these houses are built, they're built quickly and those bits don't function to start mm. with. So they don't function from day one. Okay. And then you have to kind of look at it. And the government pays huge bucks for that, by the way. Yeah. So they're paying huge amounts of money to build houses. They don't function from day one. Mm. And then after day one, once they release to the people, so you got a toilet that's not flushing. In fact, you got toilets that are flooding the entire house with shit, mm. with 20 people living in there. And so you, you, you really have to, you know, I think this tender process is very complicated in a long territory. We have to make sure that tender process goes to the right people and we have to make sure that the tender process works and there is accountability for the buildings that are built. Mm. Just like you would like for your, your house. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. How, how many how, how many people uh, are dying of rheumatic heart disease a year in the Northern Territory? So it's very pr- difficult to quantify. Um, so we, do, we don't know exactly how many people are dying um, per year. We know that um, 3,500 people are suffering from it. Um, and we probably think that at least one a week dying. Three and a half thousand people have got this disease. Yes. And is it in every community yes. in the Northern Territory? Pretty much. There's some communities higher than others. Yep. Do, do people get that disease um, if they're not, uh, you know, can normal healthy people get that disease living in normal circumstances? Yeah, so they certainly okay. can. Yeah, they certainly can, but it's extremely rare. So we have uh, Caucasian families in Melbourne getting this disease, and it's probably one in a million. So it does happen, but it's extremely rare. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, like a hundred times or a thousand times more likely to get it in the Northern Territory. Right. Yeah. It can be a random thing as well, and uh, it can happen to anyone. Okay, but it's proportionally you know, multiple, multiple times worse in the NT. Certainly, yes, yeah. Mm. And so, Bo, what have you been advocating in relation to this in terms of uh, medical assistance? Yeah, I suppose, uh, you know, know, there's so much to reflect on. This is seriously, you know, like the last three or four months, just reflecting on COVID-19. And I think um, Australia has been an exemplary country on how COVID-19 has been dealt with. Um, If you look at the entire world, whether you look at Sweden, Norway, North Korea, Japan, um, or any of the European countries, we have done so well. One of the key factors was about testing, testing, and testing. So I think with rheumatic heart disease, one of the first things that we need to do is test and test and test. And the way we do that is ultrasound scans of the heart and really picking up children who have this disease and then we can prescribe them really painful journeys of 10 years of penicillin injections, which is a pretty hard sentence, but it is life savings. So I think that's the first step is testing, testing, testing. You get the numbers. We know how many people have it. We know who to treat. And then ultimately, because the treatment is painful and long-term, and then really using those numbers moving forward to address um, housing and uh, environmental health in those communities. And specifically, like, I just want to make it clear that, you know, um, in my opinion, the housing is really important, but it has to be shared, the responsibility. So we don't want to be giving out free houses to all people and everything else. We want to make sure that the responsibility is shared respected and led by Indigenous people, um, but also it's a precious item and it's expensive, but people in remote Northern Territory will have, should have equal access to housing as some Hungarian migrants in Adelaide. Mm. Mm. Well, the other area of, um, of paediatric uh, cardiology that you have uh, specialized in bow has been uh, one that's very close to my heart, pardon the pun. Um, And that was uh, in relation to my own son, uh, Aaron. Now, 
can you explain exactly what happened that day, Bo, and uh, and how that sort of all unfolded? Yeah. So, look, it, it's really tragic when you talk about um, sudden cardiac death in young people or just prevented sudden cardiac death in young people. So that's, you know, that's a pretty um, emotionally loaded conversation. It's not even emotionally loaded, but it's it, it's like it's we shouldn't even be, you know, we wish we shouldn't we wouldn't have to talk about this. But your son was running around on a sports day, and he collapsed after the the way I understand it, he collapsed after he had his sporting run, hundred meter sprint. He was mucking around with mates. And still having a pretty decent physical activity, and all of a sudden he's collapsed, and that was witnessed by, by his mates. Um, and this happens far too often, unfortunately. And um, there's very little awareness around sudden cardiac death in young people. So all of us know that if you get chest pain, left arm pain, or left neck pain, it could be a heart attack, and we should call an ambulance for people aged myself or yourselves. <laughs> Um, but how much do we know about young people and what they experience? Because you know, young people are so much tougher than what we are. Well, he was and nine. Year, he was nine years old at the time. Yeah, he was nine. Yeah, mm. yeah. And um, so he could have been, you know, nine. Could have been fifteen. He could have been twenty-one. He could have been playing AFL. He could have been in Liverpool soccer team. He could have been in any of those things. He's in the peak of his life. He's not suspected to have heart disease, and all of a sudden he collapses. And um, and very lucky for your son that he had um, some witnesses to the episode and he was brought to the hospital for appropriate investigation. And there's, um, so we, essentially what we're talking about is a sudden cardiac death in young people. And there's, there's kind of two different things we look at. Is one is structural heart disease, other one is arrhythmias, which arrhythmias kind of relate to like the spark plug in your car. Whereas structural heart disease, now we've got a pretty good screening system to look for things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, aortic, sorry, this is a bit of jargon, aortic root dilatations because they're all familial. So we know most of the families across the world, in the Western world, and we check for them and we check their fathers and children and grandchildren and we kind of sort those kids out. And there's some non-familial things that just happen randomly out of the blue. So none of the parents have it, um, and then all of a sudden you're facing a young person who's potentially losing their life. Yeah, but that wasn't the case, though. I mean, it was just simply, I mean, I mean, he fainted at school. I mean, that's, you know, as he said, uh, he, he was awake when the ambulance came. Um, he, he and his mother were, you know, got into the ambulance and they went to the hospital. He was, he was awake at the time. Uh, he, he was awake. Uh, when uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kanga um, had a look at him. Um, and then uh, you, he decided to keep him overnight uh, for, for observation uh, for you to have a look at. And, I, you know, we had no idea that this was something serious. In fact, I just thought he's been running around, it's a hot day, he's had a bit of heat stroke, and that's why he's, you know, keeled over and had a had a and fainted. It had I had no inkling at all that this was uh, as serious as a heart attack. So, what made you think 
that this was something that could have been? Because you told me at the time that when you studied uh, paediatric cardiology in uh, Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital, that one of your uh, supervisors or seniors uh, or professors said to you that if you discover one of these, he's going to get you a bottle of champagne because it's that rare. Hmm. That, is, that is true. Yeah, so I suppose the, the big, so what we call the red herring in paediatric cardiology is that fainting mainly happens in people who are standing still in a hot environment. You know, lining up at the supermarket, at the school assembly, at the army march, you kind of stationary and do things, and everybody faints, essentially, in all the territory. In fact, 10% of all territory and children faint every single year. Right. So fainting <laughs> is extremely common in a hot climate like the Northern Territory. What was different about your son, Leon, is that your son faint, fainted during exercise. Mm. Fainting during exercise is never normal. Never, ever. It's not normal. You can't faint while you've got adrenaline on board. Okay, he just said he's running race. He's not running anymore. He was just marking around. But he's not standing in still. He's not standing in a queue. He's not doing anything. He's marking around and playing around. That's what he was doing, as far as I understand. And it's never normal for a child to faint under adrenaline circumstances, which you normally have when you run around. So that's number one. So as soon as you hear a story, someone faints during exercise that deserves a full investigation. Right. And so you did that investigation, but you said at the time that you would want to keep him overnight because you wanted to do a, uh, a, a, an ultrasound. We did all the ultrasound that night when your son arrived. Yeah. And we were very suspicious, uh, like 99.9999% sure. <laughs> right. But to be 100% sure, you needed to do a, a CT scan. CT scan, right. Which yeah, is a bit and challenging. And, and then and what did it show? Well, the CT scan showed, which is one of the most common causes of sudden cardiac death in young people, which was an abnormal origin of the right coronary artery that came from the wrong spot and got squashed between the aorta and the lung artery, so the two big blood vessels, during exercise. So exercise when your heart is pumping, the lung artery and the aorta, they're full of blood and they're pumping mm -hmm. and they squash the blood supply to the heart muscle itself. Right. That was happening to your son, and which is an extremely rare condition. Right, but it's a congenital issue, right? Yeah, you, he was born with that, yes. And most people get the diagnosis after they die. That's what you told me at the time, and that was the thing that uh, you know, made me sit up and take notice, that uh, most people get this diagnosed after they've died. Yeah. So uh, I want to thank you again, uh, Bo, for, for picking that up and for having the... Um, foresight to think about this because you know how rare is this condition by the way um so the condition is actually not that rare in my terms because you know you get conditions that are like one in a million mm -hmm. um like you know covid19 at the moment of affects one in a million so covid19 is actually pretty rare mm. the, you know the top cases out of 22 million people 
Mm. <laughs> just to put that in perspective, like in yeah. real perspective, yeah. it's a good yeah. idea in there as well, mm. by the way. But yeah, your condition, you know, the anatomy affects one in 200 people, but um, there's various versions of the structures being dominant, right, coronary or not dominant. So this is very technical, mm. but your son's condition is probably one in 1,000, one in 10,000. One in mm. 10,000, right. Yeah. Did you get that bottle of champagne, by the way? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody Victorians. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and so the only treatment for that particular situation was to, as you said, wrap him up in cotton wool until he was 30, which I couldn't quite understand how, how that helped, or have open heart surgery. Yeah. So, it's, it's, you know, it's really tricky because um, especially for boys, their most competitive years for boys is between 5 to 15, surprisingly. You would think it's in older men, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Boys become really competitive at a really early age, um, probably due to testosterone and other hormones. Um, so you can't really prevent your boy from doing what a boy wants to do. Mm -hmm. And it just comes out of nowhere. And the very serious part of this condition is that you don't get a warning. You don't get a chest pain. You don't feel pain. You don't feel tired. You don't feel anything. All of a sudden, you just collapse and die. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is what uh, we see from time to time on the sporting field? Certainly, this is what we see on the sporting field all the time. And sometimes it makes it to the media. And it makes it to the media when we're talking about, you know, Liverpool soccer players, when we're yeah. talk, talking about AFL players who are just about to be recruited to or were part of um, the AFL league. Um, so we only hear about the famous people, and certainly there's enough famous people almost every week of the year that if you really look carefully, you will see an article about someone who's really famous who just dropped away in time peak of their life they had the biggest contract in their life. They're the fittest in the people of all times. Looked at them as absolute, like, athletes, and now they're dead. But was this the sort of thing that um, we regularly see in what I would refer to as um, yeah, those ultra-marathon runners? That you, It's quite common where you hear about these, particularly the long distance. I mean, marathon, by definition, is long distance, but... You often hear about these men in their 30s and 40s who are, as you say, at the peak of their fitness, who just literally keel over either mid-race or, or in between races. Is it, is it most likely that type of disease that's, or that type of uh, condition that's affected them? Yeah, so I can generally not speak about marathon runners because they're a different breed altogether oh, yeah. and they truly push themselves to so hard <laughs> that they probably just die from running a marathon. Like the first person who ever ran a marathon, so the history of marathons is that you run it and you die. <laughs> but um, So I can't speak on that just because I don't know, but certainly soccer players, AFL players, top athletes, um, sprinters, and definitely do that. I've not heard about marathon runners, but I'd certainly know marathon runners are just so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you talk, uh, you've talked a lot, Bo, on this podcast about how wonderful our country is. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly can't, uh, you know, have this discussion without talking about our healthcare system. Uh, 
because when you discovered that issue with my son, uh, notwithstanding that, uh, you know, I'm quite um, well paid in my profession and notwithstanding that my wife is also a professional, um, you said that the only treatment was to fly him to Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital for open heart surgery as soon as possible. And that uh, took place and the government paid for my wife and I to fly down with him to Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital to put us up in uh, an apartment while we were there and for him to have uh, surgery uh, done not by any old surgeon down there but by one of the top paediatric cardiac surgeons in the world, Dr. Christian Brizard, correct? That is correct, yes. Uh, and how, how do we get a top paediatric uh, uh, surgeon uh, in, um, in Melbourne? How do we get people like that? Yeah, so I'm not sure where you're leading with, it, with that question, by the way, but um, so it's with great difficulties. Yes. Um, to get such surgeons, and obviously Australia's, uh, I'm not sure if you know the background in the last week or two, but we're really struggling. And so it's a really difficult conversation to have this week. Um, extremely difficult conversation to have this week. To, right. If you, I'm not sure if you're aware of the background, but we certainly would like to maintain and attract the world-class surgeons to Australia. Um, there's been difficulties in training Australian surgeons because it is a pathway that requires 20 years of training with a lot of dedication. And when I say a lot of dedication, it's like dedication, insane amount of dedication is what I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, Australia has been fortunate enough to attract top French, top Belgian, top South African and Russian surgeons at a price that was internationally compatible. And then just recently, um, the Royal Children's Hospital, which has been the world leading ch children's hospital in the world, has dropped their kind of amount of money that they're willing to pay for people like that. And perhaps Australia next 10 years will look quite different in relation to cardiac surgery. Gosh, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Right. And, and so... Um, He's, he's perfectly cured. There, there, there is no issue going forward, right? Yeah, he's 100%, your son is 100% cured. Mm -hmm. He's free to do anything he likes, including airfell or skydiving or <laughs> whatever he likes to do. <laughs> <laughs> all extreme sports are all clear. <laughs> right, um, right. So, your, yeah, your son has had this picked up early. And what he's left with is a scar on his chest that yes. will be there for the rest of his life. Yeah. And your son is free to do everything that he would like to do for the rest of his life. Amazing. He's very lucky. And many people are far less lucky and much more famous <laughs> and still dead. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I, I, I thank you very much for that. And I also thank the Australian uh, Medicare system for, for you know, for how great it is. I mean, you know, we hear often from our U.S. Uh, colleagues about uh, healthcare in the, in, in the U.S. and insurance and those type of things. And 
most of my friends in America, when I've spoken to them about this issue, just cannot believe that our healthcare system stepped in and looked after my son the way it did. That is completely correct. Our Australian healthcare system, I would say it's number one in the world. You know, people used to debate whether it was UK or Australia. Um, maybe I'm biased, but I think the best healthcare system in the entire world is, is Australian healthcare system in relation to looking after all individuals unquestionably. Well. So, uh, Bo, for all the good work that you have done, uh, a, a couple of years ago you were nominated and you won uh, the Australian of the Year for the Northern Territory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was that process? What, what was that like? Yeah, so um, it was surprising to start with. Um, so because I haven't done anything that I would describe as extraordinary, uh, I've just done my duty as an Australian to look after kids who need my help. And, of course, I'm going to do that to the maximum of my ability because I, I believe that all Australian kids should have access to the best health care system. And in Australia, we do have the best health care system. For, but, but for whatever reason, sometimes people just don't fit into that health care system because due to weak links rather than... You know, so the kind of weakness in the chinks in the chain. Um, so that, that, that's the thing that I'm really passionate about and I want to make sure that all Australians access the services that I do have available. So I'm not sure I became the anti-Australian right now. But I appreciate the nomination and the honour of being that. And I think it has been very helpful in um, raising awareness specifically about something that I'm really passionate about, which is rheumatic heart disease because... Really, in Australia, this is a disease of poverty we should no longer have in Australia. It's, it's, it should be like a one-on-one to get rid of. You know, we, get, we, we could control COVID-19, which was a major disaster. Look at Italy, US, Brazil, UK, Turkey, Iran, India. You name any country, everybody's struggling with this. The Australian healthcare system just nailed this to the maximum. If you can nail that, it can nail rheumatic heart disease. Like rheumatic heart disease is like one hundredth of the effort to get rid of that. Mm. Is it lack of awareness, Bo? It is lack of awareness. So we have been working very hard to raise awareness in communities and to raise awareness to politicians. And what we need now, so we know everything about this thing. What we need is political will to put this disease in history yeah. books. This is very clear. What we needed is political will to address COVID-19, and we did them extremely well. We did that so well, it's now like everybody's pissed off when I'm going to open the board. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, That's so we true. did it well. And, you know, like people get frustrated, but I think the biggest thing is to give credit to the Australian politicians, Australian doctors and healthcare workers that no other country in the world right now mm. has the luxury of thinking, oh, we have done so well, that's so boring. I completely agree. I, yeah. I, I see a lot of negative comment about politicians, particularly on the um, federal government side of things. And I think to myself, well, what are you pissed off about? You, you could be in Spain right now or, or Italy or America. And or would you, you prefer UK that? Today, or you could be yeah. Russia. Or, yeah. I mean, UK today is not looking good and Russia is looking no. horrible and the US is looking insanely horrible and yeah. not to mention many other countries. So 
to address rheumatic heart disease, it's much more basic than uh, COVID-19. Mm. And it just needs to be targeted to rheumatoid disease. And the, the principles are the same. Testing, 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 and treating. So the same, exactly the same principles. Mm. And obviously in the long term, um, what we did in COVID-19 is the social distancing. The social distancing in remote communities is going to be insanely difficult until you have more houses. And then, you know, you want to give the, the balance of power. You don't want to just build houses and people destroying them as Leon led to that. You want to have houses with responsibilities. You know, I'm not going to be an expert on this. I'm not going to lead these discussions. But, you know, Indigenous building, people building their own houses with support, with upskilling, getting certificates, training, um, you know, leading pathways towards um, infrastructure, uh, towards business. And I think there's a lot of different ways we could approach how we could address the tremendous disadvantage in remote communities that are far worse than third world. Mm. In a way that's sustainable and give uh, power back to the community um, with skills and knowledge that are sustainable. Yeah, because back in the old days, these people used to build, back in the old days, indigenous people in these East Island communities, they used to have um, like shops like uh, manufacturing furniture, they used to have woodworks, they used to have certificates towards um, being an um, electrician, like not a full, um, uh, not a full certificate and be become a sparky, but they used to have this kind of bridgeways where they could fix all of their power problems or toilet problems or plumbing problems. And now that has been all been withdrawn from the Northern Territory government. So now you can either be a fully, fully qualified plumber or you're not a plumber at all. You can be a fully qualified electrician or not an electrician at all. And obviously in remote communities, you kind of have the, the bridgeways where mm -hmm. how can we have local people working where you kind of like a, a tradie that you can do certain things. So you can switch, you know, you can change a light bulb in a housing commission house. You can, you know, unblock a toilet. Uh, you're not building a new house and inserting the whole entire plumbing, but we have to have this kind of bring this thing back where you have local people who are able to sort 90% of problems with electricity and power and plumbing and those things. And so we're not reliant on fly-in, fly-in people who just charge enormous amount of monies and often do a relatively dodgy job, by the way. Mm. So um, there's an election coming up in a few weeks. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, if, you, if you decide to run, I'll vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say use your vote wisely. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I just think you're a marvellous person. I, I think you have a lovely heart. I think uh, you are... A, you are a quintessential example of why we should be very welcoming to migrants and why, um, you know, and, and what makes Australia such a great country. So I, I just want to thank you very much for your contribution to this country, uh, for your contribution to my son's life uh, and for being on this podcast, Bo. My pleasure, Leon, and thank you. That was Dr. Bo Romanyi on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast 
with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.